This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 14. I'll be reading verses 32 to 42. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 14, I'll begin reading at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we pray that you will help us to pray like Jesus. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Allow me to set the stage for our story. Jesus has already triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem for the last time of his life to the thunderous applause of the crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver as foretold by the prophet Zechariah. The upper room has already been prepared. Jesus has already presided over the Passover meal, instituted what you and I call the Lord's Supper, identified Judas as his betrayer, and declared that all of his disciples would fall away on this night on account of him. As the evening hours pass, the drama intensifies. Jesus takes his disciples to the garden called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. He says to them, sit here while I go and pray. Then taking his three closest earthly friends, Peter, James, and John, he goes a little further into the garden. Mark says that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to the inner circle, my soul is overwhelmed with grief to the point of death. Stay here, keep watch. On this night, Jesus was distressed and he was troubled. On this night, he felt a greater distress than the day he stood at the tomb of his best friend, Lazarus, 
On this night, Jesus feels a deeper distress than he felt days earlier when he said, overlooking the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. On this night, Jesus feels a deeper distress than he's ever felt in his life. On this night, he feels a deeper distress than any other human has ever experienced before or since. On this night, Jesus feels distressed. That's a word that means to be crushed with anguish. To be full of sorrow. It's a vivid term. It's a violent word. It is to be crushed with anxiety and anguish. To be troubled is to have terrible misery. On this night, Jesus feels terrible. He is full of misery and sorrow. He's overwhelmed to the point of death. It is Luke who says that going a stone's throw away, he knelt down and prayed. Matthew says in his version of the gospel that Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. Mark simply says, going a little bit farther, Jesus fell down and he prayed. When you take all three of those portraits of Jesus together, you discover that he is collapsing under the magnitude of the moment. That Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point that it is crushing him. And he begins to kneel in prayer, but the weight of the moment burdens down upon him and it forces him down to the ground. His face is plastered against the dirt. And Jesus prays. It is Luke, who's a doctor by trade, who says that Jesus began to sweat drops of blood that fell to the ground. The condition is called hematidrosis. It's rare, but very possible, that when a person experiences overwhelming stress and agony, that the capillaries under the eyebrows and forehead regions can begin to swell and burst. What is secreted out of the sweat glands is a mixture of blood and sweat. You and I know what it is to be stressed out. We know what it is to be full of anxiety. We get stressed because of the mortgage and paying the car payment. We get stressed because of all of the children's activities and the enormous deadlines at work that seem to be never ending. We get stressed because of all of the activities that we stuff on our calendar. We get stressed because it seems that there's always more month than money. We get stressed because of an upcoming doctor's appointment or a surgery or a sickness. We get stressed because of our past or our present or even fear of the future. We get stressed by an enormous amount of things. But I dare say that none of us have ever become so stressed that we begin to sweat drops of blood. In this moment, Jesus feels the weight of the world on his shoulders. Overwhelmed with sorrow, crushed with anxiety, feeling terrible misery. My question to you this morning is, why is Jesus so stressed? I don't think that Jesus is... Stress because of the physical pain he's about to endure over the next 18 hours. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I don't think Jesus is excited about the prospect of being punched and beaten and spit upon and plucked and stripped and nailed to a rough cross of wood. I don't think he's excited about the physical pain, but it's not the physical pain of crucifixion that stresses him out in this moment. No, Jesus knows what is to happen. He knows what will unfold over the next 18 hours. He is the architect of salvation. He understands what has to take place, but it's not the physical pain that drives him on his face before God the Father. No, it is the spiritual pain that is overwhelming. Because Jesus understands what will happen when he hangs to make us holy. Jesus knows what will take place when he dangles in our stead and he is, and he is on the cross in your place and mine. Jesus knows the spiritual pain he's about to endure. Jesus is the one that originated salvation. He's the one that carried it out to its accomplishment. Jesus has always known that he came to earth to seek and to save the lost. He knows that the cross is before him. In fact, the gospel writers make it very clear that he sets out for Jerusalem. There's determination in his step. He knows what the end result will be. Not too long ago, Jesus had been on the mountain of transfiguration. There had been two celestial citizens, uh, two visitors from heaven, Moses and Elijah, who came to talk about the upcoming departure, the exodon, which was about to take place in Jerusalem. No, Jesus was very much well aware of what would happen physically and, more importantly, spiritually. Because Jesus knew that he who knew no sin would become sin for us. That literally he would bear the brunt of punishment. Not just for you and for me, but for all the redeemed. That Jesus would die in our place, taking our punishment upon himself. His suffering would be hellacious. In fact, the argument could be made, and I believe it completely, that Jesus absorbed in that three-hour window of time an eternity's worth of condemnation for you and for me so that the case could be made that Jesus took our hell upon himself. That God the Father, who stands outside of time, space, and matter because he's the creator of time, space, and matter, deemed that it would be true that on a particular Friday in the third decade of the first century that Jesus the God-man would be our substitutionary sacrifice, that his blood would cover over all of our sin and God the Father determined in his divine plan that an eternity's worth of condemnation would be stuffed and squeezed into that three-hour window of time on that faithful Friday afternoon so that Jesus would declare, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, in this moment, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he understands that that sweet Trinitarian fellowship will be momentarily severed and splintered and friend that has never happened before and it'll never happen again and Jesus is very much aware that that sweet fellowship that has always existed in eternity past of God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit for all three in one they are co-eternal co-equal God that they have enjoyed sweet fellowship and sweet communion yet on this faithful Friday in the third decade of the first century there would be a momentary shattering of that relationship. 
And it's that spiritual reality that weighs so heavily upon Jesus. He gets to the point that he's overwhelmed with sorrow at the prospect of knowing that that relationship of father, son, and spirit would be momentarily severed and splintered. And so in this moment, Jesus does not debate God. He doesn't deny God. He doesn't disobey God. He doesn't disregard God. He simply prays to God. And I realize that it's a hard notion for us to fathom God praying to God. Yet that's exactly what took place. God the Son praying to God the Father in the power of God the Spirit. And Jesus prayed. Not the only time in the New Testament that Jesus prayed. In the Gospels, we find Jesus praying frequently. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says that Jesus got up while it was still early and went to a solitary place and prayed. Luke chapter 5 uh, tells us that routinely Jesus would withdraw to solitary places, lonely places, and pray. In Luke chapter 9, it is Jesus who, as he is praying, his face is transfigured and transformed. In John chapter 17, it is Jesus who prays the high priestly prayer for himself, his disciples, and all believers. In Luke chapter 22, it is Jesus who prays to the Father on behalf of Peter, and he says to the apostle, when you repent, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Oh, routinely, we find Jesus praying to the Father. And in this moment, Jesus being overwhelmed to the point of sorrow and death, being crushed with anxiety, experiencing terrible misery, he falls on his face before the Father and he prays. And the prayer that he offered was one tough prayer. Abba, Father, everything is possible with you take this cup from me yet not my will but your will be done in that prayer I want you to notice two things first I want you to see and hear the raw sincerity of Jesus and secondly I want you to see and hear the radical submission of Christ With raw sincerity, Jesus makes his case. With raw sincerity, he pleads before the Father. It is Mark and only Mark who quotes on the lips of Jesus that Aramaic phrase, Abba. It's probably the first word that Jesus ever learned to speak. It's probably the most primal, basic Aramaic word. It's ironic, isn't it? That the one who spoke the world into existence had to learn how to talk. (laughs) That the ancient of days became the infant of days. That Jesus was born in a Bethlehem barn. He had to learn how to crawl. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. And probably his first word was Abba. In English we have similar words. We teach our young toddlers. Dada. Dada. Mama, mama. It's just a repetition of a basic phrase, consonant, breath. If you're the father, you try to teach your children dada first. 
If you're the mother, no, no, you teach your children mama first, right? Because you want the first word to be the identification of you. (laughs) And such is the case when Jesus, probably the first word he ever spoke, Abba. And in this moment, he is reduced down to that infant state once again. That Jesus, the mighty Messiah, is, is, is there being crushed under the anxiety of the moment, under the pressure of the moment. And he simply looks up to the Father and, and he simply says what he said some 33 years earlier. Abba, 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 Father. With raw sincerity, Jesus goes to the Father and he just says in the basic relationship of a son to a dad, Abba, everything is possible with you. There's nothing you can't do. Everything you can do. Jesus has great theology. He knows that God the Father can do anything. For God is all powerful. He can do anything he wants to do. He is a sovereign God of the universe. Abba, Father, everything is possible with you. So here's my request. Take this cup from me. It's not that Jesus doesn't want to save sinners. He's just asking, is there any other way for us to do it besides you pouring out your holy hostility and righteous wrath upon me at the cross? Is there any other way? Can you take this cup from me? The cup is symbolic. It's rich in Old Testament imagery, of the cup of judgment, the the cup of condemnation, the cup of wrath. And here Jesus understands that he will be the substitute. He will die in the place of sinners. And so in this moment, he's, he's asking the Father, is there another way so that this cup can be taken from me? It's raw sincerity. What makes this prayer tough is not the raw sincerity. Anybody can pray with raw sincerity. Anybody can pray to God and bear their soul. Anybody can make a request of God. Anybody can come and say, God, this is what I want you to do. Anybody can pray with raw sincerity. That's not what makes it a tough prayer. What makes it a tough prayer is the radical submission that follows, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. It's it's not what I want, it's what you want. I am being submissive unto you. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, the author of the Hebrew text says that in the days of Jesus, while he was living on earth, he made many petitions with loud cries, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. The author of the Hebrew letter says the reason that Jesus cried out and the reason you know that his prayers were heard is because he subjected himself to submission. He was, he was reverently submissive to the word and will of God. Friend, do you ever feel as if God's not listening to your prayers? Do you ever feel as if your prayers are not answered? Listen, can I tell you if it worked for Jesus, it will work for us, that the way we know that our prayers are heard is that we surrender unto him in reverence. In raw sincerity, we present our request to God. And with radical submission, we declare unto him, your will, not my will, be done. And friend, that's a tough prayer. The prayer of Jesus is permeated with raw sincerity and it's punctuated with radical submission. 
It is permeated with raw sincerity. It is punctuated with radical submission. That Jesus says, Lord, Father, this is what I want. Please, everything is possible. Please, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. This is how Jesus prays. This is how we ought to pray. Oh, Father, please, heal my friend of cancer. I know you can do it. I know that you're able. You can take that cancer out of his body. So please, for the sake of his wife, for the sake of his children, for the sake of his family, please, Lord, heal my friend of cancer. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Oh, Father, you know that we want to have children. My wife and I have been trying, but it's of no use. Our friends are having children. Promiscuous teenagers are having children. But Father, we're not having any children. And we want you to open up the womb of my spouse. And Lord, please, please give us children. We want to pass on the faith to biological children. So please, Lord, give us children. Give us children. This is our heart's desire. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Father, help me to get that job. You know I can do the job. I'm qualified for it. By your power, I could do this. And you know my family needs the money. And you know that we will do our very best to steward whatever resources you give to us for your good and for your kingdom. So Lord, you know all the demands uh, that are on our checkbook. You know all the demands that are in our household. And we desperately need that job. And I've been looking and I've been looking and doors have been slammed and doors have been slammed. But Lord, this one, this one seems like the right job. It seems like the best job. So please, Lord, give me this job. I know you can do it. All things are possible with you. Please, please give me this job. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Friends, this is the toughest prayer in the world to pray. What makes it tough is not the raw sincerity. What makes it tough is the radical submission. And that radical submission is not just a tagline that we put at the end of our prayer. No, this is the mantra. This is the motto of who we are as a people of God. For we declare, Lord, we want your will above our will. We want your way above our way. Lord, we want what you want because we are your children and we are your people. So we lay out our raw sincerity before you. And with radical submission, we uh, reverence ourselves before you. Say, not my will, but your will be done. Oh, friend, is this how you pray? This is how Jesus prayed. Apparently, he prayed this for about an hour. Then he went back and he found the disciples and they were sleeping. Now, before we indict those old boys, maybe we should identify with them. Because if Jesus were to show up on a random Thursday night in your life, what would he find you doing? It's late. These guys are tired. They just had a massive meal called the Passover. What do you expect to happen? Grown men, late at night, and they're tired, and they got a full belly. What do you think's going to happen? They fell asleep. Jesus woke them up. Simon, Peter, could you not wait just for one hour? James, John, could you not pray with me just for one hour? I want you to pray so that you won't fall to temptation. The spirit is willing, but 
the flesh, the body is weak. You've got to pray in order to withstand the temptation that's going to come at you. So Peter, James, John, the rest of you, any of you, you've got to stay awake, stay alert, watch, and pray. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said that prayer will lead you from sin or sin will lead you from prayer. So if I could just ask a bold question to you, this past week, did you spend more time praying or sinning? Answer that. You don't have to answer it out loud. You can if you want to, but at least answer it in your mind. This past week, did you spend more time praying or more time sinning? I can testify that when I look back over my life, those moments of time when I sin more is because I've prayed less. Those times when I sin less is probably because I have prayed more. These disciples, they're, they're not necessarily sinning, they're just sleeping. And Jesus wakes them up, jolts them from their slumber, and he says, you guys have got to wake up. Because you've got to pray in order to withstand temptation. Friend, if it worked for Peter, James, and John, it'll work for you as well. If you want to withstand temptation, be girded in prayer. If you want to withstand temptation, you be one who is fervent in your prayer life unto the Lord. Jesus declares to those saints what he would declare to us today. Listen, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Peter, James, and John, they had a willing spirit. They didn't want to sin. But they did because their flesh, their body is weak. What's true for Peter, James, and John is also true for Tom and Jack and Jill and Jennifer. It's true for us today that most of us as saints of God, most of us as children of the Lord, we don't want to sin. But our flesh, our body is weak. And the way that we combat that is in prayer. So Jesus told the disciples to pray And then Mark says he went back and he prayed the same thing. He prayed the same thing for maybe another hour or longer. He prayed the same thing. Abba, Father, everything is possible with you. Take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. He goes back and he finds them still sleeping, their eyes are still heavy. He goes and retreats for a third time in prayer and he prays the same thing over and over and over again. Friend, why does Jesus have to pray the same thing over and over and over again? And the best answer I can come up with is this, that Jesus is furrowing faithfulness into his spirit. He is drilling it down deep. And if that's true of Jesus, the perfect son of God, then how much more should you and I furrow faithfulness into our spirit? Because we are far from perfect. And if Jesus, the perfect son of God, had to repeatedly say, not my will, but your will, not my will, but your will, not my will, but your will, if that's how much Jesus had to say it, then how much more do you have to say it and do I have to say it where we say unto the Father, not my will, but your will be done. Because we, unlike Jesus, we have a sin problem. Jesus was perfect, we are not. We have a sin problem. At the heart of sin is selfishness. And we want our way 
And we want to do what we want to do. And we have to go to God and say, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Have you ever had a scenario, a a problem, a situation that as you look at it, you think to yourself, this is an easy one. I know exactly how God's going to react. I know what he's going to do. I know how he's going to step in. I know when he's going to step in. And this is what he's going to do. Anybody ever had a situation where you say of the Lord, Lord, listen, I know how you're going to react in this scenario. Only to find out that Jesus does not act the way that you think he ought to act. Anybody else happen that happens to me routinely where I say unto the Lord, Lord, this is an easy one. I think this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to step in. This is how you're going to save. This is how you're going to fix it. And many times he doesn't do it the way I think he ought to do it. And what Jesus is teaching me, he just might be teaching you that we have to pray, not my will, but your will be done. It's not just that God's ways are higher than our ways. His ways are better than our ways. So we have to say unto him, in raw sincerity, here's my request. You are able to do everything, so please take this fill in the blank from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, your will be done. And I think that Jesus successfully drilled that deep into his spirit. He went back to his disciples. They were asleep. He finally woke them. He said, my hour has come. Arise. Get up. A betrayer is at hand. Finally, Jesus said his hour had come. Earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus had said my hour had not yet come. In fact, in every gospel, we read of Jesus saying in previous moments, my hour has not yet come. When Jesus um, is asked by his mother to change water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, he says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. On another occasion, Jesus did not make it uh, back to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. And the reason given is because my hour had not yet come. Yet here in Mark 14, his hour had come. The cosmic uh, event had collided with our calendar. My hour has come. This is why I came. This is for the moment and the mission. So here I come. I am going out in faithfulness unto the Lord. See, Jesus went into that garden devastated and he walked out determined jesus went into that garden fearful and he walked out faithful jesus went into that garden sorrowful and jesus walked out of the garden of gethsemane certain that he was going to do the will of god what's the difference what changed From going into the garden and leaving the garden. The change was the prayer that Jesus prayed. It was permeated with raw sincerity. It was punctuated with radical submission. Not my will, but your will be done. He furled that. He drilled that deep into his spirit. And he walked out with determination etched on his face. And Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. He withstood, made up charges, and mocked trials. He was beaten beyond all human recognition. He stumbled and staggered with a cross beam 
tied to his back uh, through the streets of Jerusalem up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And there he stretched his arms wide and they nailed him to the cross. They hoisted him to the air and he died between two thieves. And in the process, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Mission accomplished. The job is done. The task that you've given me to do has been fulfilled. To Telestai, it is finished. What you have asked me to do, the architect of salvation accomplished salvation. Jesus died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve. He who is innocent became guilty so that we who are guilty may be declared innocent. His dead lifeless body was taken off the cross, placed into a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, Jesus rose victoriously from the grave. Because he prayed that one tough prayer, millions upon millions upon millions have a changed destiny. Because he prayed that one tough prayer. Because he said, Father, everything is possible. Please, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. Because of his raw sincerity and radical submission. Because of that, millions upon millions upon millions of the redeemed have been forever changed. So that I can stand before you this morning. Being thankful of the prayer that Jesus prayed. Because of his prayer, I have victory. Because of his prayer and his accomplished work on the cross, you have victory. I heard an old, old story how a savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, his precious blood atoning. And I repented of my sin and I won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew him and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. Church, today I have victory. Victory over my past. Victory over addiction. Victory over sin. Victory over the present victory over the future victory upon victory all because of who Jesus is and what he prayed and what he did on my behalf that victory is not just for me beloved that victory is also for you it's for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord because Jesus says that you who call on the name of the Lord will be saved your sin nailed to the cross your punishment absorbed by Jesus the righteous uh, uh, the righteous wrath of God that should be meted out against you was poured squarely upon Jesus the Christ and Jesus gives you the victory. So this morning, do you pray like Jesus? Some of you are here and you just need to bear your soul before the Lord with raw sincerity. Tell him what's on your heart. With raw sincerity, speak to him. As, his, as the loving Abba Daddy that he is. Before you leave this place, I want you to punctuate your prayer with radical submission. Before you get up and leave, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. 
We give this invitation. If there's somebody here who needs to know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today is the day of their salvation. For somebody here who just needs to pray like Jesus, Lord, I pray that you will help us to be raw in our sincerity and us to be radical in our submission unto you so that we can declare thy will be done. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.